Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Former President Trump fined over $350 million in New York over inflating the value of his assets in statements to lenders. Analysis on whether this is justified and an overview of his other cases. Trump had a full calendar over the weekend, appearing at the self-filled greatest sneaker show on earth in Philly before heading over to Michigan and find out how some truckers have banded together to protest the fine against him. President Biden and Senate Leader Chuck Schumer call on House Republicans to pass the foreign aid bill with $60 billion earmarked for Ukraine after Ukraine loses of a key position on its eastern front. Russian police arrest hundreds of demonstrators over the weekend after President Vladimir Putin's top political foe suddenly dies in prison. Reactions to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death. The U.S. has new intelligence on Moscow's military capabilities. Our guest weighs in on the possibility of a Russian nuclear anti-satellite in space. Could there be a connection between playing an instrument and better brain health? The results from a recent study related to dementia. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome and happy Monday. Today is February 19th. Yes, we hope you all had a great weekend. And you know, Evelyn, former President Trump's appeal over his civil fraud ruling is probably likely to involve that no victims argument. That's right. And he's real uh, confident that this appeal will be successful. After all, he paid the loans back. Yeah, that is a good point. And you know, usually these types of cases involve ordinary people losing lots of money. But analysts say that's just not the case here. I see. Well, interesting. And this is today's top news because last week saw several cases against former President Trump move forward. Here's an update on where they stand. Well, thank you very much. On Friday, Trump vowed to appeal after a judge ordered him and his companies to pay $355 million in penalties. That's in his New York civil fraud case. The accusation that Trump and his business associates inflated property values to get better rates with banks. The former president repeated his claims of innocence and criticized the judge. He ruled against me before he even got the case. He ruled against me, said I was guilty. He didn't know what I was guilty of before he even got the case. He also had strong words for the New York attorney general who brought the case. Letitia James, that's another case altogether. She's a horribly corrupt attorney general, and it's all having to do with election interference. There were no victims because the banks made a lot of money. They made $100 million. In his criminal cases, Trump is facing charges for allegedly interfering with election results in the state of Georgia. His lawyers are trying to get the district attorney in that case disqualified. They're accusing Fulton County DA Fannie Willis of engaging in an improper relationship with her special prosecutor and financially benefiting from the case against Trump, an allegation she denies. In Florida, the former president is facing charges that he kept top-secret government documents at his Mar-a-Lago residence. The judge met with prosecutors and Trump's lawyers behind closed doors last week. She refused a request from Trump's legal team to delay pretrial deadlines. That trial date is scheduled for May 20th. In the federal January 6th case, Trump made his last pitch to the Supreme Court last week to pause the trial. 
He's also asking the full bench of the D.C. District Court of Appeals to review a three-judge panel ruling denying him presidential immunity. In New York, Trump lawyers are preparing for the first-ever criminal trial against a former U.S. president. Trump stands accused of paying hush money to adult movie actress Stormy Daniels. A judge set the trial date last week for March 25th. Joining me now for an assessment of former President Trump's civil fraud ruling and a look ahead is John Malcolm, VP of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. John, great to hear from you. Trump has vowed to appeal. Can you explain what that process will look like and the odds of any success there? Sure. Well, he's going to have to put up quite a bit of money if he appeals. So Judge Ngoron fined him $355 million, was just under the $370 million that Letitia James asked for, and has also barred him from participating in any business in New York for three years. And that includes, by the way, borrowing money from any bank that is registered in New York. That's an awful lot of banks. Also barred his children, Don and Eric, uh, for two years. So he, if he appeals, he's going to have to put up a surety bond uh, of basically, you know, deposit the money in escrow into uh, the bank. He's a billionaire, so he can do it, uh, but it's not going to be easy for him to do it. And that is on top of nearly $90 million that's already been awarded to a woman named Jean Carroll. Uh, he has several grounds to appeal. So the law under which he was uh, sued uh, is designed for you know, consumer protection uh, against fraud. Uh, it's usually not designed for very sophisticated banks. He's going to argue, as you said in your lead-in, there was no victim here. The banks were completely paid off on time with the interest that they had demanded in their loans. Uh, and, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, and also that these were, you know, draconian penalties to impose under the circumstances. He'll also argue that the judge was biased against him. Uh, I don't know how that appeal is going to go. I think the fact that there were no victims and this was a very harsh penalty has quite a bit of appeal uh, to any court that looks at this. Uh, I think that those penalties may end up getting reduced. Whether he's going to get the whole verdict overturned or not, I'm not so sure. I appreciate the insight into this, John. And Deutsche Bank gave Trump a $2 billion haircut when they cut down his total worth because they were assessing how much his assets were worth. And so they were doing their own due diligence there. And then they made money off these loans, like we said. And as the Wall Street Journal puts it, there was no real financial victim. So is this a fair ruling? Look, I think it's a draconian, a draconian ruling. And Letitia James certainly had vowed to go after Donald Trump when she was running for reelection. Uh, and that is another point that you raised, which is he had disclaimers in his document that said, hey, this is my my best good faith estimate of what my worth is. But don't trust me. Go do your own due diligence. Uh, and banks are certainly capable of doing due diligence, and a number of them did. Some of them, it seems, uh, didn't do enough. But either way, they ended up being made whole. None of them ended up suffering a uh, dime's worth of loss. Let's look at the motivations to begin with here. Attorney General, Attorney General Letitia James, she promised during her campaign that she would go after Trump. And now if she allegedly hunted for a reason to go after him and found it here in these allegations of inflated asset values, is that an abuse of the law? Well, look, anytime you have selective prosecution in which a prosecutor says, I'm going to, to name an individual and go after him, I'll find the crime later. 
uh, that is abusive. Leventi, Leventi Berea, who was the head of the uh, KGB in the Stalin era, said, you find me the man and I'll find the crime. And this smacks a little bit of, this, of that. Alvin Bragg, by the way, the district attorney uh, in, uh, in New York, who's going to be prosecuting President Trump in a trial that begins on March 25th, very much said the same thing when he was running. He said, I have been involved in legal disputes with Donald Trump for quite some time. I know the man. If you elect me, I'll get him. John Malcolm at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for your time. Great to be with you. And former President Trump had a busy weekend speaking at a couple of events on Saturday. The appearances came a day after the ruling in his New York civil fraud case. And today's Daniel Monahan has the highlights. And I'm proud to be an American. The former president began a Michigan rally by calling the judge's decision a lawless, unconstitutional atrocity that sets fire to the nation's laws. You talk about democracy, this is a real threat to democracy and restoring fair, equal, and impartial justice in America. We have to have that, because we don't have that now. Trump was speaking to a crowd that overflowed an airport hangar northwest of Detroit. I'm thrilled to be back in the American heartland. This is the heartland with the proud, hardworking patriots who made this country run. The Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination has accused Democrats of election interference in the form of multiple civil and criminal cases against him. Earlier in the day, the former president introduced his new Trump-branded sneakers at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. The event bills itself as the greatest sneaker show on earth. We have a few young ladies that are up here crying. Look at you with the Trump 2024. Thank you, darling. I love you too. Wow. A lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion in this room. The gold high tops with an American flag detail on the back are being sold as the never surrender high tops. Roman Sharp from Philadelphia said he was happy to pay $9,000 in an auction for the sneakers signed by Trump, saying he wasn't going to stop bidding until he won. Mr. President, I'm the one that won your signed sneakers here at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. It was very, very extremely happy to see you, see your face, see you speak to the crowd. Trump supporters at SneakerCon shared their feelings about the former president and the 2024 election. Because America's fed up from all the corruption, the open border, the crime, all the endless wars and, and the money that's going out the doors. Washington is a swamp. Oh, I think Trump wins automatically. I think people are awake now and people realize that there's been a lot of lies in the past. People are seeing the truth now. Man, I just admire that man up there. I just like, ever since I was young, like, he's been my hero. And I just like, I was shaking in my boots over here. I was sweating, I couldn't even believe it, man. I just saw him on stage and I actually burst into tears. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley lashed out at Trump on Sunday while campaigning in South Carolina ahead of the state's primary election. The former governor brought up Trump's legal woes and told those in attendance that chaos follows him. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with an over 30-point lead against Haley in her home state of South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The wife of investor Grant Cardone has started a GoFundMe page to help cover Trump's legal expenses after the New York verdict. It has raised over $413,000 as of today. 
And continuing with the former president, a group of truck drivers are refusing to drive to New York City to show their solidarity with him. They're protesting the verdict in the civil fraud trial. A trucker known as Chicago Ray shared a video Saturday on X saying truckers overwhelmingly support Trump. He said he'd spoken to about 10 drivers so far who won't deliver loads to the Big Apple. The ex-user says people are tired of those on the left interfering with the former president and called it election interference. The post has over 7 million views and was reposted by Trump on Truth Social. President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are demanding that House Republicans pass the $95 billion foreign aid bill. Biden spoke with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky over the weekend, linking Ukraine's withdrawal from a key city to Congress's inability to act. The White House says the withdrawal was forced by ammunition having to be rationed. Schumer called the unclear and sudden death of Putin's political enemy Alexei Navalny an urgent alarm bell. Biden has criticized House lawmakers for taking a two-week break, calling it outrageous. Here's the president yesterday. Look, the Ukrainian people have fought so bravely and heroically. They put so much on the line. And the idea that now, when they're running out of ammunition, we walk away, I find it absurd. I find it unethical. I find it just contrary to everything we are as a country. Zelensky hinted at the House recess on Saturday, stating, please remember that dictators do not go on vacation. Schumer said Putin is watching, and nothing would make him happier than to see Congress waver in its support for Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson and other Republicans have issues with the bill. Many feel it lacks provisions for border security amid record-breaking numbers of illegal crossings. Schumer on X posted the bill as, quote, sitting on Speaker Johnson's desk while Putin waits to see if the U.S. will act. Two police officers and a firefighter were killed yesterday while responding to an emergency call in Burnsville, Minnesota. Local authorities confirmed the incident took place during a domestic abuse call for assistance. At approximately 1.50 a.m. on February 18th, uh, Burnsville police were called to a residence in the 12,600 block of 33rd Avenue South on a report of a domestic situation where a man was reported to be armed and barricaded with family members in the home. We later learned uh, that there were seven young children in the home, uh, ranging from ages 2 to 15 at the time of this event occurred. According to a statement from the city, officers were met with gunfire when they entered the home. Three men were fatally shot, while another officer was injured and taken to a hospital. He's believed to have suffered non-life-threatening injuries. Officials say the suspect, who hasn't been identified, was also killed. None of the other family members inside the home were harmed, including the seven children. Coming up, U.S. forces struck an unmanned underwater vessel controlled by Houthi rebels in the Red Sea. They say it's their first time seeing this kind of vessel being used by the terrorist group. And Israel Defense Forces release videos showing Hamas weapons and unused medical supplies for hostages at a major hospital complex in Gaza. That's as Prime Minister Netanyahu brushes aside calls for a ceasefire, vowing to finish the job. Blame and protests over the unclear death of Russia's opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His anti-corruption campaign now accusing Russia of covering up the cause of death and hiding his body. More on the response. 
The U.S. has new intelligence on Moscow's military capabilities. Our guest weighs in on the possibility of a Russian nuclear anti-satellite in space after the break. Good to have you back. The U.S. on Saturday conducted strikes against Houthi anti-ship cruise missiles and vessels, including an underwater vessel in the Red Sea. According to Central Command, it's the first time U.S. forces observed an unmanned underwater vessel used by the Houthis. It marks a new strategy for the Iran-backed terrorist group. Houthi forces have been attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea since the start of the Israel-Hamas war, sparking fears of a wider regional conflict. The attacks have forced thousands of ships to divert from one of the most important maritime trade routes, causing global delays. Last month, the U.S. and its allies began a series of retaliatory strikes against the Houthis. The U.S. is threatening to veto a new Gaza ceasefire resolution at the United Nations Security Council. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield issued a statement Saturday night. It said the U.S. would not vote for an Algerian proposed resolution calling for a humanitarian ceasefire. Thomas Greenfield says the U.S. is working on a deal between Israel and Hamas. That deal would see the release of hostages and a pause of fire of at least six weeks. Last Wednesday, Arab countries in the U.N. reaffirmed their support for the Algerian resolution. Meanwhile, today the UN's highest court begins historic hearings into the legality of Israel's occupation of Palestinian territories. Palestinian representatives will speak at the International Court of Justice. Hearings will be held until next Monday, but the court will likely take months to issue an opinion. While any opinion is non-binding, it could impact public opinion on Israel, which is facing increasing international pressure over the war in Gaza. The Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry yesterday accused Israeli forces of putting one of its largest still-functioning hospitals completely out of service. It says the Nasser Medical Complex is now unable to handle critical cases. That's as Israel's military said they found Hamas vehicles used in the October 7th attack in the hospital's parking lot. The video released yesterday shows grenades and guns inside a car. The IDF says they also found unopened boxes of medication labeled with the names of hostages inside the hospital's pharmacy. Israeli forces raided the medical facility in Han Yunis last week, saying intelligence suggested Hamas was operating there. Also yesterday, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu brushed off more calls to halt the offensive in Gaza. He vowed to finish the job. A member of his war cabinet threatened to invade the southern city of Rafah if remaining Israeli hostages are not freed by the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan. And over to Russia, blame for the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny poured out over the weekend. The 47-year-old sudden death at a remote Arctic prison on Friday comes less than a month before an election that will give President Vladimir Putin another six years in power. Protests in Russia were dispersed and police arresting hundreds and taking away tributes. 
Members of Navalny's anti-corruption campaign are accusing Russia of hiding the politician's body and covering up the cause of his sudden death. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on reactions to Navalny's death. Tributes to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny were broken up over the weekend and flowers and candles thrown away. Rights group OVD Info says more than 400 people have been arrested so far in over 30 Russian cities, most in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Protests also popped up in cities like London, Paris and Barcelona. Our freedom is also dead. I mean, that's what it means for me. Prison officials told Navalny's mother he died from sudden death syndrome, a term that could involve a wide range of scenarios, resulting in unforeseen sudden death. Navalny's spokeswoman on Saturday confirmed his death, claiming he had been murdered. She says a cause of death has not been determined and the family doesn't know where the body is. We demand uh, that Russian authorities immediately uh, give Alexei's body to his family. Russian officials told them results of a new investigation would be released this week. President Biden Sunday said he believes Putin is responsible, but hasn't had that confirmed. Whether he ordered or not, he is responsible for the circumstances to put that man in. And he is reflection of who he is, and it just cannot be tolerated. Biden on Friday blamed Putin and stressed funding to Ukraine. Putin is responsible. What has happened in Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled. Britain Saturday promised consequences for Russia, but did not say what kind of actions it would take. Navalny was serving a three-decade sentence on extremism and fraud charges that he denied. His death comes as Putin prepares for next month's presidential election, set to keep the Russian leader in power until 2030. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And the White House now confirming that Russia is developing a troubling new anti-satellite weapon. National Security Spokesman John Kirby says although Russia has the capability, the weapon isn't operational and there isn't any immediate threat to anyone's safety. To gain more insight, we bring in retired Colonel John Mills, a former director for, of cybersecurity policy at the Defense Department and now senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Good morning, John. Good to see you as always. So first, give us some more insight into what is new about these weapons and what the U.S. is finding out about them. Well, thank you, Evelyn. Good morning. Uh, this story has so many branches and sequels, it's hard to even know where to where to begin. So Congressman Turner brought this up and created a, a mini panic on Capitol Hill over this story. I think part of it, one, was some grandstanding for U Ukraine aid, okay? But two, I think there's also some truth to this. Now, three, it also shows a hyper focus on Russia, where the real uh, trending threat or issue is China. If Russia has put something in orbit, and it was so cryptic and so difficult to figure out what was going on here, if Russia puts something in orbit, I can assure you at this point in time, China has put 10. And there was a reference to nuclear weapons, which violates the space treaty. The, the, the era of grand treaties is over, and the Democrats and everyone needs to just realize that the era of treaties uh, is over. Wow, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's start with this. So this is a nuclear anti-satellite weapon, right? So what is the potential in how it could harm the U.S., and what kind of damage could Russia do with those? Well, it's not clear, but it, it, it seemed to be indicating a nuclear weapon in orbit. Uh, it was so hard to diff figure this out from so many different reports. 
But uh, if this is, I mean, that was the whole purpose of the Space Treaty in 1967, when we were, when we, uh, the Amer Americans, were uh, producing the X-20 dynamic soaring vehicle, which was to do fractional orbit, uh, orbital bombardment from space, which led to the Space Treaty, which prevent, you know, which the signatories said they would not put nuclear weapons in orbit. Okay, now there's some form of nuclear weapon possibly uh by the russians again i would assert china if uh, china would have just as many if not more uh but it it's be, it's being cited as being used for defensive purposes i don't know how you can discern between offensive or defensive uh when you have a nuclear weapon in orbit it could be used for either and it would be a mess if it was used so just to clarify you were mentioning china saying that china has those already readily available or, or? I, I would say it's foolish to focus on uh, Russia uh, solely at this point in time when the uh, capabilities of China is far outpacing Russia mm -hmm. and, and, and it shows the intelligence community has essentially ignored the Chinese nuclear threat. They, they, they've ignored it. They didn't, haven't even acknowledged it existed until maybe a couple of years ago. And, and so when we're finding the Chinese nuclear force is just as big or big, probably a lot bigger than the Russian nuclear force. So if Russia has put a nuke in orbit, assuredly China has also and probably far more. So this is, this is the problem with this whole story. It opens up so many branches and sequels. And, uh, and it should be grave concern over what's going on here. Right. So one last thing you touched on the Outer Space Treaty. How worrying is it to you that Russia is breaking the Outer Space Treaty now? And what are the broader implications of that? It means the, the era of tr grand treaties from the Cold War, it's over. Everybody has to get used to it. It's over. The Russians were always lying about the strategic treaty. They're always lying about the intermediate nuclear force treaty, which is why President Trump walked away from it. It, it was patently absurd. Everybody, it was an open secret. I mean, so it, it wasn't a secret that they were lying about it. And so the blue team has an obsession with treaties. Treaties only work when you have credible deterrence and they are enforced. Neither is happening right now. Very interesting insights and very alarming, actually. So thank you so much, retired Colonel John Mills. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Evelyn. Coming up, there's increasing pressure on European nations to do more to counter Russia's threat and support Ukraine after former President Trump said he wouldn't help NATO allies that didn't spend enough on defense. One Republican senator now echoing Trump's comments. Is the U.S. Navy keeping pace with the Chinese Navy? Who's building more ships? Where is China narrowing the gap? And what about espionage warfare in this area? A retired colonel gives us some answers. As many as 700,000 demonstrators across Mexico dressed in pink came out to protest yesterday. Their accusations against the Mexican president and his ruling party after the break. Good to have you back, everyone. Hungary is the last NATO country yet to ratify Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. A group of U.S. senators traveled to the Central European nation on Sunday, but government officials there declined to meet them. 
The bipartisan delegation urged Hungary to immediately approve Sweden's bid and said it'll submit a resolution to Congress condemning democratic backsliding in Hungary. Hungary's government has delayed Sweden's ratification for more than 18 months. It's now the only obstacle to Stockholm after Turkey signed off last month. Prime Minister Viktor Orban has been critical of Sweden in the past. He's accused the Nordic nation of spreading, quote, blatant lies, unquote, about the state of Hungary's democracy. There's increasing pressure on European nations to step up its efforts to counter Russia after recent comments from former President Trump. Trump recently warned that if elected, he wouldn't defend NATO allies that fail to spend enough on their own defense. Lithuania's foreign minister said this is a clear signal that Europe must do much more. He praised his country's increased defense budget this year and said he wanted to show allies that Lithuania was doing its part. Back in the U.S., Republican Senator J.D. Vance said the odds were 50-50 on U.S. approval for a multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. He said while the U.S. remains loyal to NATO, Republicans want Europeans to do more. But, you know, we, we want to make sure that government in, in Germany, that administration in the United States, that they would know that whatever they are helping, uh, that whatever they are doing to help Lithuania, we're doing our part as well. We're not freeloading. Look, the best way to help Ukraine, I think, from a European perspective, is for Europe to become more self-sufficient. Vladimir Putin is, of course, in the geopolitical backyard of Europe. The problem is not American willpower or American money. The problem is that NATO doesn't make enough of its own stuff. If we pass this legislation tomorrow, um, and I don't support it to be clear, but if it passed out of the U.S. House, it's, it would not drastically increase the supply of weapons into Ukraine because we've already expended so many of our munitions resources. More on defense. The U.S. Navy, is it up to par? And is it capable of protecting the U.S. from communist China? I asked this to retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham, who is a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of When China Attacks. Here's what he told me. Oh, only if the fight is just off San Diego. Uh, if it's a fight much closer to China, uh, we're going to have some problems. Uh, we don't have enough ships, obviously. China has a lot more than we do, and they're building more of them. We don't have uh, enough ammunition, put simply, uh, the right types of missiles in the right numbers. Uh, we, our industrial base is not very good. We're not able to build ships like we used to. China outbuilds us at least five to one for every ship we launch. Uh, we'd have trouble getting uh, battle casualties replaced, um, getting repairs done, and we're not recruiting enough sailors. So we're in a little bit of trouble right now. Yeah, if we're going to take on China, uh, we'd better hope that they do it the way we want them to, and, but they just might not. Right. Very concerning. And to add to your point there, there's leaked intelligence documents that shows that China's shipbuilding capacity is over 230 times the United States. So overall, is the United States Navy on the decline or on the rise? I think you'd have to say on the decline, uh, particularly because the Chinese Navy, the Chinese military is improving to such an extent. So even though the Navy still has punch, plenty of it, uh, that it is headed in the wrong direction. And if you factor in the improvement in Chinese capabilities, uh, we're getting left in the in the back in the dis in the distance. Yeah, it's definitely something that needs to be 
taken into account, especially since China's modernizing with that Fujian carrier that caught public attention back in 2022. Are there U.S. capabilities right now that would deter China for a potential invasion of Taiwan, for example? Oh, yeah, we still have plenty of, a lot of capability. It's probably not enough, but we could give them a, more than a bloody nose. Uh, but we still have missiles that work. We, our submarines are a great advantage, which we need to uh, maintain. Uh, the Chinese are trying to narrow the gap on that. Um, but for now, let's say the next couple of years, maybe, we've got uh, some capabilities. But say the, the trends in both directions, for them and for us, uh, are not good. Right. And Grant, of course, last month even we had that sailor who was sentenced now to 27 months for leaking these documents to the Chinese military. So they're doing everything they can to get the advantage here. Now, which nation is it, the United States or China, that uses asymmetric warfare to their advantage more? Well, the Chinese do a good job of it, um, particularly using their maritime militia. And as you pointed out, their espionage, their cyber uh, and really capitalizing on American economic dependency uh, on the PRC, which has created a huge constituency, really, of pro-China uh, elites in this country. And those have to be looked at as asymmetric advantages. So it's not just a question of who would win an all-out naval fight, an all-out war. as these other things that go on in peacetime, particularly, as I said, uh, the economics, the cyber, but also fentanyl, the drug that killed 77,000 Americans a year and a half ago. And the numbers are going up. And those are often Americans of military age who potentially would serve. So they're killing 77,000 of us, a lot of them potential uh, recruits uh, every year. And Washington is doing nothing. How can you expect to prevail in that situation? Very important to heed that information. Retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham, thank you. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. And huge crowds took to the streets of Mexico City yesterday to protest against President López Obrador's government and to defend dem democracy. An estimated 700,000 demonstrators dressed in pink marched through cities in Mexico and abroad on Sunday. The protest dubbed the March for Democracy targeted Mexico's ruling party ahead of the country's June 2nd elections. I think it's an exercise of freedom, and it's something all Mexicans have to do, because it's something that hasn't been seen for a long time. The demonstrations were called by Mexico's opposition parties. The same-day presidential frontrunner Claudia Sheinbaum officially registered as a candidate. Sheinbaum is backed by President López Obrador. Protesters accused López Obrador of making moves that endanger democracy and trying to concentrate power in the hands of his party's government. Last year, the leader cut funding for the country's electoral agency, the National Electoral Institute. Demonstrators have used the agency's color pink as a symbol. López Obrador also weakened oversight of campaign spending. He's attacked journalists in press briefings and frequently claimed there's a conservative conspiracy against his administration by Mexico's judiciary. Over the last few years, we have seen a ferocious attack against these institutions, the National Electoral Institute, the Supreme Court of Justice of the Nation, and the autonomous constitutional bodies. Demonstrators also used the protest to speak out against a failure to curb widespread violence and social spending programs. The current government is leading us to catastrophe, to being worse and worse to being afraid and not wanting to go out on the street because we are afraid. 
I don't have enough money and I have to work more to have the same standard of living. That is why I have come here to protest. Organizers said close to 120 cities across Mexico, as well as 15 cities in seven countries, confirmed participation in the protest. Lopez Obrador has said he'll respect the results of the election. Polls show Shanebaum is favored to win. Supporters of the sitting president say he bucked the country's elite parties from power in 2018 and represents the working class. Up next, what does the ruling in Trump's New York fraud case mean for his business? The host of NTD Business joins us to discuss. Former Congressman George Santos is suing late-night host Jimmy Kimmel. More on the lawsuit's accusations and his demands after the break. Good to have you back, everyone. As you can see, we have Entity's business host, Don Ma, with us now. And today we're discussing the $355 million ruling against former President Trump. So, Don, on top of the ban from running his empire in New York, what does this mean for Trump's businesses? All right, so first of all, I think this is not something that Donald Trump and his sons and the Trump Organization can, can easily overlook uh, because it is a lot of money, e even for Donald Trump. Uh, so I'm sure you already uh, know the details of, of the ruling. So this ruling, although it, it, it is a blow to uh, Donald Trump and his businesses, it's not a fatal blow. So that's what we need to keep in mind here. Um, so in terms of uh, how this is going to impact his business, he's still going to own uh, everything that he runs, but he, he and his family are really cut off from personally running and maintaining them. But what's more important here, I think, is that the ruling could potentially limit his ability to access capital, and that's important here. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, the New York Attorney General's office got the fine but she did not get the permanent bans that she wanted. Okay, so cut off from the business and limit um, his ability to access capital. So how does the 355 million actually impact him? Okay, so in terms of that, uh, first of all, Trump has uh, many ways that he could potentially uh, pay that penalty. He has uh, plenty of methods uh, to use at his disposal. And he previously said that he himself has $400 million in cash. So, you know, he could use that. Uh, he, call, he could also get money by putting his assets up as collateral. Uh, but the ruling bars him from getting a loan from any financial institution registered in New York. And this ban on applying for loans from banks uh, registered or chartered in New York could restrict Trump's ability to raise cash. So that's important here. Um, so that could mean he would need to get a personal loan from a non-financial institution or an unregistered financial company. Uh, but, you know, Forbes, Forbes estimates that he does have $2.6 billion of net worth. Uh, most of it is tied up in real estate. Uh, he could sell parts of his portfolio to satisfy the ruling. But if he does not pay, however, uh, he could be uh, slapped with more fines in addition to that uh, hefty price tag. But imprisonment at the end of the day is very unlikely. Yeah, and looking long term here, Trump has made a lot of money from these speeches and also his golf courses and hotels. Even the Washington Post shows that he made a billion dollars from leaving his presidency. So a lot of opportunities still there for him. But how will the ban from running his empire in New York affect his businesses? 
Right, so yeah, that's what we're all wondering. The picture isn't 100% clear right now, but we do have a bit of information. Uh, I mean, Trump may be removed from the corner office, but uh, as an owner of the business, he, his right to appoint someone to act on his behalf has not been revoked. Uh, so it's not that he can't have influence at his uh, enterprises anymore. Uh, he just can't hold any actual appointed uh, positions. Uh, but luckily for Trump, he has cut his debt by hundreds of millions of dollars in recent years. So that means he won't need to refinance as much. He also has pushed out the maturity of many loans still on the books by several years. Uh, because don't forget that he is banned from getting loans from New York chartered uh, banks. Interesting. So let's let's move on here for a moment because onto another topic. There has been a dispute going on between George Santos and uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Okay, yeah, let, let me just talk a little bit about that. Uh, former U.S. Representative, Representative George Santos filed a lawsuit on Saturday against late-night host Jimmy Kimmel. So Santos alleges that Kimmel deceived him into making videos on the Cameo app, later used to ridicule the former lawmaker on the show. Kimmel allegedly represented himself to induce Santos to create personalized videos. The suit alleges, uh, unbeknownst to Santos, that Kimmel submitted at least 14 requests that used phony names and narratives. Starting in December, uh, the videos were played on a segment called uh, Will Santos Say It? Uh, Santos' attorney says that Kimmel what, what he did was a violation of copyright law. And Santos is seeking sat, uh, satatory damages totaling $750,000 for the five videos he created uh, that were played on the show and some social media platforms. He's also asking for uh, damages uh, to be determined at trial, other damages, that is. The lawsuit names Kimmel, ABC, and Walt Disney Company as defendants. Yeah, and according to the lawsuit, Jimmy Kimmel even joked on his show about being sued by Santos, saying how good that would be. And the lawyer sent them a cease and desist order already. So Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks. And Oregonians in 2020 passed a ballot measure that created the most liberal drug law in the country, decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs and funneling hundreds of millions of dollars in cannabis taxes to addiction recovery services. Now that measure is being reconsidered. Since Oregon decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs, this has become a common sight in the state's most populous city of Portland. People on sidewalks, corners, and benches crouched over torch lighters held up to sheets of tinfoil or meth pipes. This number here. And officers like David Baer issuing drug citations to users. Fentanyl came on the scene at the same time that decriminalization happened, and then we saw an explosion in public drug use downtown, and uh, unfortunately that brought other issues into downtown, such as you know, gun violence and uh, other crime. Touted as a revolutionary approach at the time, Oregonians passed Measure 110 in 2020. Its goal was to treat addiction as a public health matter, not a crime. It made it so police could issue $100 citations, along with a card that lists the number for an addiction treatment services hotline. Instead of being arrested, the individual would call in exchange for help dismissing this citation. But state data shows only 4% of people who received citations called the hotline. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's most recent annual figures, nationwide, Drug overdose deaths rose seven-tenths of a percent to more than 109,000 Americans in 2023. Compared to the previous year, Oregon's increase over that period was 11 percent. 
facing public pressure amid the surge in overdose deaths. State lawmakers are preparing to vote on recriminalization. Democrats, who are the State House majority, are pushing for a bill to make small-scale drug possession a low-level misdemeanor, punishable by up to 30 days in jail, with the opportunity to seek treatment instead of facing charges. It became very, very obvious that what was happening on the streets of Portland and what was happening on Main Street, Oregon, was unacceptable. And we could not wait any longer to wait for the system to catch up. We needed to do something immediately. The proposed bill also carries harsher sentences for drug dealers, wider access to medication for opioid addiction, and expanded recovery and housing services along with drug prevention programs. But Republican lawmakers say the bill doesn't go far enough. Their proposal includes up to a year in jail for drug possession, with the option for treatment and probation instead of jail time. Coming up, is there a link between playing a musical instrument and brain health? We take a look at one study from the University of Exeter to see what their results say. We're in the nation's capital asking the important questions so that you're in the know. Join us daily, Monday through Friday, on the Capitol Report on NTD News. Thanks for staying with us. Is there a connection between playing a musical instrument and better brain health? A recent study released by the UK's University of Exeter says yes. Let's take a look at the results. New evidence suggests that playing an instrument could be a major key to fighting dementia. That's according to University of Exeter researchers. A study called PROTECT found that people who've had a lifetime exposed to playing music or singing in choirs are likely to have a better memory and better brain health. This professor explains one reason why. The brain is like a muscle. You have to train it, challenge it, use it or lose it. And I think that is what we're seeing here in these people. There are social benefits to these musical activities too, which are also thought to help improve brain health. It's rewarding trying to do something which you can't to start with, and you do it again, you do it again, and then suddenly you can. But it's also the social side. That's what I've enjoyed most. The online study reviewed data for more than a thousand people aged over 40. It compared how much experience they had in participating in music to their brain function. You set yourself a challenge by choosing music that sometimes is a little bit above your level, and it's a real mathematical challenge to figure out how it all fits together. Not all instruments bring the same level of benefit to the brain, according to the study. Strings are good, but brass and woodwind are better. The best results were from people who play piano. Piano is incredible because you play two keys with two different hands. So that I, I, can, I can give that tip for the piano. The researchers say their findings suggest it's beneficial to include musical education as part of public health initiatives for brain health in older adults. They also said there's considerable evidence that music group activities can help people with dementia. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me, use it or lose it. And I read that apparently, you know, it's also good for mental health because it um, supports emotional regulation and self-expression. So that's awesome. Yeah, it really does sound like a win-win-win. You get to help your brain, you get to make beautiful music, yeah. and kind of de-stress while you're at it. Right. All right, uh, on that note, we're heading to a quick break. We'll be back in just one minute, so stay tuned.
NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world. Expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Former President Trump fined over $350 million in New York over inflating the value of his assets and statements to lenders. Analysis on whether this is justified and an overview of his other cases. California is bracing for a new round of storms with some cities under flood watch. What to expect in the Golden State this week? President Biden and Senate leader Chuck Schumer call on House Republicans to pass the foreign aid bill with $60 billion earmarked for Ukraine after Ukraine loses of a key position on its eastern front. Russia captures a strategic town in eastern Ukraine. Could this victory set the stage for a Russian surge on the war's two-year anniversary? Analysis on this and the impasse over U.S. aid. Russian police arrest hundreds of demonstrators over the weekend after President Vladimir Putin's top political foe suddenly dies in prison. Reactions to opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Monday, February 19th. Heading into today's top news. There's increasing pressure on European nations to step up its efforts to counter Russia after recent comments from former President Trump. Trump recently warned that if elected, he wouldn't defend NATO allies that fail to spend enough on their own defense. Lithuania's foreign minister said this is a clear signal that Europe must do much more. He praised his country's increased defense budget this year and said he wanted to show allies that Lithuania was doing its part. Back in the U.S., Republican Senator J.D. Vance said the odds were 50-50 on U.S. approval for a multi-billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. He said while the U.S. remains loyal to NATO, Republicans want Europeans to do more. But, you know, we, we want to make sure that government in, in Germany, that administration in the United States, that they would know that whatever they are helping, uh, that whatever they are doing to help Lithuania, we're doing our part as well. We're not freeloading. Look, the best way to help Ukraine, I think, from a European perspective, is for Europe to become more self-sufficient. Vladimir Putin is, of course, in the geopolitical backyard of Europe. The problem is not American willpower or American money. The problem is that NATO doesn't make enough of its own stuff. If we pass this legislation, tomorrow, um, and I don't support it to be clear, but if it passed out of the U.S. House, it's, it would not drastically increase the supply of weapons into Ukraine because we've already expended so many of our munitions resources. U.S. President Joe Biden called on Congress to approve aid to Ukraine, saying, quote, our security depends on it. 
And for a breakdown of developments in the Russia and Ukraine war, we hear from Stephen Bryan, a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and a senior fellow at the Yorktown Institute. Stephen, thanks for your input at this critical time in the war. Could the Russian victory at Avdiivka pave the way for a Russian surge ahead of the two-year anniversary of this war? I think the real question is less about what the Russians do and more about what Ukrainians do. Uh, in particular, I think the problem uh, is mostly Zelensky. Zelensky had staked his political reputation on winning in a Divka, uh, but in fact he lost. Uh, and, and, you know, he fired his commander-in-chief Zeluzhny and replaced him with a guy named Sirsky, but it didn't get any better. Most importantly of all, the most important brigade that Zelensky has is called the Azov Brigade, sometimes it's referred to as the Third Brigade, ran away from Adivka after it was inserted there to try and save the city. So he's got a mess on his hands, and a lot of it's his fault. Right, Stephen, and Commander Sirsky said that the move was to save lives of the troops, this retreat, that is. Is it worth it for the American people to finance Ukraine's war effort, considering President Zelensky says that a win for Russia could have repercussions beyond its borders? Well, it will have repercussions beyond the borders. I think that's a correct analysis. Uh, the, real, the real issue here is, are we going to throw more money in and get results? I don't think so. I think we reached a point where we better find a negotiating path and try and figure out how to solve this war, end the war, because it's not going anywhere. It's going south, as we say in the business. There's very little chance, if any, that the United States or the allies in NATO can turn the tide here. It's, it's too late. Stephen, wouldn't be the first time that your point there, that issue has been raised on the defense.gov website, official government website. It says that an unnamed official said that without U.S. funding, Ukraine's defenses will likely collapse and that it's very clear in his view that if there is not this help with the United States supporting Ukraine, that the costs to the world and the United States are going to be much greater later on. Do you have any input on this? Well, I'm not sure that's true. Uh, it depends how you end the war. And we don't know that yet. I mean, there hasn't been a negotiation since the war, since the early part of the war, when uh, there was an attempt to bridge the gap and make a deal uh, that fell apart. Uh, Washington opposed it. Washington has always opposed negotiations here, and I think that's a bad policy. The Biden administration is wrong about that. We should have negotiations and see if there's some way to, to, to bring this war to an end before more lives are lost, because it's not going anywhere. It's just going to kill people. How long can Ukraine keep up its defenses if this stalemate over U.S. aid drags on? Not very. Um, not very long at all. So, I mean, the, but the problem is we don't have the ammunition anymore. I, uh, I, I think that's an issue because, you know, we can pledge aid, but if we can't deliver it, what's the difference? So uh, that's a difficulty. You know, we don't have enough uh, artillery shells. We don't have enough air defense missiles. We don't have enough anything. Uh, we have, we've drained the, our reserves. Uh, we're taking stuff out of active units now. Uh, I don't think you can sustain that. Well, Stephen Bryan, Senior Fellow at the Center for Security Policy and Senior Fellow at the Yorktown Institute, thanks for weighing in on this. Thank you very much.
President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are demanding that House Republicans pass the $95 billion foreign aid bill. Biden spoke with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky over the weekend, linking Ukraine's withdrawal from a key city to Congress's inability to act. The White House says the withdrawal was forced by ammunition having to be rationed. Schumer called the unclear and sudden death of Putin's political enemy Alexei Navalny an urgent alarm bell. Biden has criticized House lawmakers for taking a two-week break, calling it outrageous. Here's the president yesterday. Look, the Ukrainian people have fought so bravely and heroically. They've put so much on the line. And the idea that now they're running out of ammunition and walk away, I find it absurd. I find it unethical. I find it this country and everything we are as a country. Zelensky hinted at the House recess on Saturday, stating, please remember that dictators do not go on vacation. Schumer said Putin is watching and nothing would make him happier than to see Congress waver in its support for Ukraine. House Speaker Mike Johnson and other Republicans have, issued with the bill, have, have issues with the bill. Many feel it lacks provisions for border security amid record-breaking numbers of illegal crossings. Schumer on X posted the bill as, quote, sitting on Speaker Johnson's desk while Putin waits to see if the U.S. will act. And Hungary is the last NATO country yet to ratify Sweden's bid to join the military alliance. A group of U.S. senators traveled to the Central European nation on Sunday, but government officials there declined to meet them. The bipartisan delegation urged Hungary to immediately approve Sweden's bid and said it'll submit a resolution to Congress condemning democratic backsliding in Hungary. Hungary's government has delayed Sweden's ratification for more than 18 months. It's now the only obstacle to Stockholm after Turkey signed off last month. Prime Minister Viktor Orban has been critical of Sweden in the past. He's accused the Nordic nation of spreading, quote, blatant lies, unquote, about the state of Hungary's democracy. And blame for the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny poured out over the weekend. The 47-year-old sudden death at a remote Arctic prison on Friday comes less than a month before an election that'll give President Vladimir Putin another six years in power. Protests in Russia were dispersed, with police arresting hundreds and taking away tributes. Members of Navalny's anti-corruption campaign are accusing Russia of hiding the politician's body and covering up the cause of his sudden death. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on reactions to Navalny's death. Tributes to Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny were broken up over the weekend and flowers and candles thrown away. Rights group OVD Info says more than 400 people have been arrested so far in over 30 Russian cities, most in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Protests also popped up in cities like London, Paris and Barcelona. Our freedom is also dead. I mean, that's what it means for me. Prison officials told Navalny's mother he died from sudden death syndrome, a term that could involve a wide range of scenarios, resulting in unforeseen sudden death. Navalny's spokeswoman on Saturday confirmed his death, claiming he had been murdered. She says a cause of death has not been determined and the family doesn't know where the body is. We demand uh, that Russian authorities immediately uh, give Alexei's body to his family. Russian officials told them results of a new investigation would be released this week. President Biden Sunday said he believes Putin is responsible, but hasn't had that confirmed. Whether he ordered or not, he is responsible for the circumstances to put that man in. And he is it's a reflection of who he is. And it just cannot be tolerated. 
Biden on Friday blamed Putin and stressed funding to Ukraine. Putin is responsible. What has happened in Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled. Britain Saturday promised consequences for Russia, but did not say what kind of actions it would take. Navalny was serving a three-decade sentence on extremism and fraud charges that he denied. His death comes as Putin prepares for next month's presidential election, set to keep the Russian leader in power until 2030. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, former President Trump fined over $350 million in New York over inflating the value of his assets and statements to lenders. Analysis on whether this is justified and an overview of his other cases. California is bracing for a new round of storms with some cities under flood watch. We look at what some Californians can expect this week coming up. Welcome back. Last week saw several cases against former President Trump move forward. Here's an update on where they stand. Well, thank you very much. On Friday, Trump vowed to appeal after a judge ordered him and his companies to pay $355 million in penalties. That's in his New York civil fraud case. The accusation? That Trump and his business associates inflated property values to get better rates with banks. The former president repeated his claims of innocence and criticized the judge. He ruled against me before he even got the case. He ruled against me, said I was guilty. He didn't know what I was guilty of before he even got the case. He also had strong words for the New York attorney general who brought the case. Letitia James, that's another case altogether. She's a horribly corrupt attorney general, and it's all having to do with election interference. There were no victims because the banks made a lot of money. They made $100 million. In his criminal cases, Trump is facing charges for allegedly interfering with election results in the state of Georgia. His lawyers are trying to get the district attorney in that case disqualified. They're accusing Fulton County DA Fannie Willis of engaging in an improper relationship with her special prosecutor and financially benefiting from the case against Trump, an allegation she denies. In Florida, the former president is facing charges that he kept top-secret government documents at his Mar-a-Lago residence. The judge met with prosecutors and Trump's lawyers behind closed doors last week. She refused a request from Trump's legal team to delay pretrial deadlines. That trial date is scheduled for May 20th. In the federal January 6th case, Trump made his last pitch to the Supreme Court last week to pause the trial. He's also asking the full bench of the D.C. District Court of Appeals to review a three-judge panel ruling denying him presidential immunity. In New York, Trump lawyers are preparing for the first-ever criminal trial against a former U.S. president. Trump stands accused of paying hush money to adult movie actress Stormy Daniels. A judge set the trial date last week for March 25th. Earlier, I spoke to John Malcolm, VP of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government and director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies to get his assessment of former President Trump's civil fraud ruling. Oh, Judge Ngoron fined him $355 million, was just under the $370 million that Letitia James asked for, and has also barred him from participating in any business in New York for three years. And that includes, by the way, borrowing money from any bank that is registered in New York. That's an awful lot of banks. Also barred his children, Don and Eric, uh, for two years. So he, if he appeals, he's going to have to put up a surety bond. 
uh, of basically, you know, deposit the money in escrow into uh, the bank. He's a billionaire, so he can do it, uh, but it's not going to be easy for him to do it. And that is on top of nearly $90 million that's already been awarded to a woman named Jean Carroll. Uh, he has several grounds to appeal, so the law under which he was uh, sued. Uh, I don't know how that appeal is going to go. I think the fact that there were no victims and this was a very harsh penalty has quite a bit of appeal uh, to any court that looks at this. Uh, I think that those penalties may end up getting reduced. Whether he's going to get the whole verdict overturned or not, I'm not so sure. Attorney General Tisha James, she promised during her campaign that she would go after Trump. And now if she allegedly hunted for a reason to go after him and found it here in these allegations of inflated asset values, is that an abuse of the law? Well, look, anytime you have selective prosecution in which a prosecutor says, I'm going to, to name an individual and go after him. I'll find the crime later. Uh, that is abusive. Leventi, Leventi Berea, who was the head of the uh, KGB in the Stalin era, said, you find me the man and I'll find the crime. And this smacks a little bit of, this, of that. Alvin Bragg, by the way, the district attorney uh, in, uh, in New York, who's going to be prosecuting President Trump in a trial that begins on March 25th very much said the same thing when he was running. He said, I have been involved in legal disputes with Donald Trump for quite some time. I know the man. If you elect me, I'll get him. John Malcolm at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for your time. Great to be with you. Former President Trump had a busy weekend speaking at a couple of events on Saturday. The appearances came a day after the ruling in his new New York, in his new York civil fraud case. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the highlights. And I'm proud to be an American. The former president began a Michigan rally by calling the judge's decision a lawless, unconstitutional atrocity that sets fire to the nation's laws. You talk about democracy, this is a real threat to democracy and restoring fair, equal, and impartial justice in America. We have to have that, because we don't have that now. Trump was speaking to a crowd that overflowed an airport hangar northwest of Detroit. I'm thrilled to be back in the American heartland. This is the heartland. With the proud, hardworking patriots who made this country run. The Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination has accused Democrats of election interference in the form of multiple civil and criminal cases against him. Earlier in the day, the former president introduced his new Trump-branded sneakers at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. The event bills itself as the greatest sneaker show on earth. We have a few young ladies that are up here crying. Look at you with the Trump 2024. Thank you, darling. I love you too. Wow. A lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion in this room. The gold high tops with an American flag detail on the back are being sold as the never surrender high tops. Roman Sharp from Philadelphia said he was happy to pay $9,000 in an auction for the sneakers signed by Trump, saying he wasn't going to stop bidding until he won. Mr. President, I'm the one that won your signed sneakers here at SneakerCon in Philadelphia. It was very, very extremely happy to see you, see your face, see you speak to the crowd. Trump supporters at SneakerCon shared their feelings about the former president and the 2024 election. Because America's fed up from all the corruption, the open border, the crime, all the endless wars and, and the money that's going out the doors. Washington is a swamp. Oh, I think Trump wins automatically. I think people are awake now and people realize that 
there's been a lot of lies in the past. People are seeing the truth now. So. Man, I just admire that man up there. I just like, ever since I was young, like, he's been my hero. And I just like, I was shaking in my boots over here. I was sweating, I couldn't even believe it, man. I just saw him on stage and I actually burst into tears. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley lashed out at Trump on Sunday while campaigning in South Carolina ahead of the state's primary election. The former governor brought up Trump's legal woes and told those in attendance that chaos follows him. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with an over 30-point lead against Haley in her home state of South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The wife of investor Grant Cardone has started a GoFundMe page to help cover Trump's legal expenses after the New York verdict. It has raised over $413,000 as of today. And continuing with the former president, a group of truck drivers are refusing to drive to New York City to show their solidarity with him. They're protesting the verdict in the civil fraud trial. A trucker known as Chicago Ray shared a video on Saturday on X saying truckers overwhelmingly support Trump. He said he'd spoken to about 10 drivers so far who won't deliver loads to the Big Apple. The ex-user says people are tired of those on the left interfering with the former president and called it election interference. The post has over 7 million views and was reposted by Trump on Truth Social. Flood watches are issued across much of the California coast as another round of heavy rain looms. The first round of rain arrived Saturday evening across central California. Santa Barbara County officials say heavy rainfall is forecasted from Sunday evening through Wednesday. Emergency management officials issued evacuation orders for areas at risk of flooding and landslides. The National Weather Service says the stronger storm will also bring gusty winds, lower temperatures and high elevation snow. Winter storm warnings are in effect for the Sierra, the Southern Cascades and the Greater Lake Tahoe area. Really is serious. I mean, the, almost the whole population of California is under flood alert right now. That's right. Stay safe. And also officials urging people to stay off the roads. So, yeah. All right. We wrap up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast later today at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you. Thank you for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.